Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's April 5th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Sure thing, Charlie. Well, let's just jump right in. Uh, the, the, the latest uh, controversy about the Trump cabinet surrounds Scott Pruitt. Uh, I would have thought, I'll be quite honest with you, that he would have been one of the safest members of the cabinet before that really um, extraordinary interview with Ed Henry on Fox News, uh, where it was uh, it was it was was not it was not the most effective performance. The White House suggesting that they take some of these accusations uh, about his uh, his spending very very seriously. So, let me get your sense, uh, uh, Stephen. Um, does Scott Pruitt survive this? I would have, you know, if, if we had had this conversation yesterday, the day before, before the Ed Henry interview, I, I would have thought that he probably does, in part because he, he's earned Donald Trump a lot of praise from conservatives, from Donald Trump's base. The, the Trump base has been very happy with what Scott Pruitt has done at the EPA, a dramatic change from his predecessor under Barack Obama, really making strides in rolling back some pretty ridiculous uh, regulations at the EPA and others that are we could probably debate about. But Pruitt's been pretty effective. And Donald Trump, of course, likes that sort of uh, bank shot praise that his administration gets for what uh, Scott Pruitt has done. So so on just a visceral level, I think Trump likes Pruitt and likes what he's done. But th- one story after another after another, and, and you know, in particular his ability to answer the pretty straightforward questions that Anna Henry um, sent his way yesterday, I think has to give the White House pause, and by all indications is giving the White House pause. But don't... But- President Trump thinks he's effective, as you point out. You know the things he's doing are very, very central to the the agenda. He's got a lot of support among conservative media Trump supporters. You know, all of that would line up arguing that 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 yeah, if if uh, if the president didn't like him, if he was in the doghouse, um, if there were people you know cutting his tires, that he'd be on the way out. I, I guess the. <laughs> The the problem with getting rid of of, uh, of Scott Pruitt is he's really one of the Trumpiest of the members of the cabinet right now, isn't he? Yeah, I, I guess he is. I mean, he's pr- proven himself after having said some disparaging things about um, Donald Trump when Trump was a candidate about yeah, Donald that, Trump. Does being, that come back and haunt him now? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly the the fact that he said that and and you know he he later walked it back. He he said. I won't get the exact quote right, but he said something to the effect of Donald Trump would would have less regard for the U.S. Constitution than Barack Obama had. And when that was originally reported, uh, I believe a couple months ago, he put out a, a subsequent statement saying that having watched the president in office, he's not at all concerned about that and he was wrong about what he had said initially. I think the fact that that's being recirculated again probably will end up crossing um, Donald Trump's desk at, at some point or another. It's, this is an interesting test. I mean, I've talked to, to sources at the White House and, and elsewhere in the administration who say that it's very clear that Donald Trump is frustrated by the negative stories he's getting about his cabinet officers. Um, he doesn't like the stories about the $31,000 dining room set and the extravagant travel and all these things. A little bit ironic given what Donald Don't Trump himself there. does. Um, the the trips to Mar-a-Lago and whatnot, but he's frustrated by this, and and he thinks it makes him and his administration look swampy, and I think he's he's right about that. On the other hand, as you point out correctly, 
Scott Pruitt has a lot of support among movement conservatives. He is a movement conservative. Scott Scott Pruitt has spent time thinking about conservative ideas and conservative principles. He's been subscribers to magazines like ours for for a long time and to to other movement conservative magazines. And he has some support among movement conservatives who are making their support known to Donald Trump right now. And this comes at an interesting time because if you if you look at what the president has chosen to do on the border and the kinds of things that he's uh, said and, and actions that he's taking, suggesting he's sending the National Guard to the border, um, he's clearly feeling extra sensitive about criticism from his yeah. base right now. And, and the question will be, which wins out? His frustration with cabinet officials and stories that are um, dominating the, the mainstream media or... Uh, his his fear of further alienating his conservative base. Well, I want to talk about uh, the the midterms and, and the <clears throat> the gale force winds that appear to be blowing. Uh, but it, the editorial in the Weekly Standard today is uh, the president versus the economy, pointing out that Republicans are just over six months away from the 2018 midterm elections, and there's plenty to worry about. The one thing going decisively in Republicans' favor is the economy. Jobless rates dropped to 4.1%, may drop further. GDP growth seems certain to remain at around 3%. And perhaps most important, wages are rising across the board. And yet you have the president who appears intent on stoking a trade war and using his Twitter account to attack American, a major American business. Pretty amazing, actually. Pretty amazing moment. Um, the, the president, of course, is still underwater on his approval, disapproval. He's recovered a little bit, uh, depending on which surveys you look at, but still in the gallop. He's underwater, I think, by 10 plus points. He's at about 39 percent approval for the month of March. Um, with an economy as strong as this one appears to be, uh, the fact that his approval rating is still so low, I think, uh, is explained best by exactly the kinds of things that the editorial talks about. I mean, this is a president who's spending his time on Twitter. He's picking fights with the media, as he always does. He's starting trade wars. He's boasting about starting trade wars and talking about how easy it will be to win them, only to sort of soften that uh, as the time goes on. And the sense that um, you have to take the president not just seriously, but literally, to use the old campaign um, debate about how to regard Donald Trump, you know, whether we want to take him literally or not, it's very clear that the leaders of China are taking him literally when the president talks about what he's going to do on on tariffs and uh, the retaliatory tariffs, which surprised some of the president's top economic advisors, uh, a fact that's sort of beyond me. Um, that's having an effect. You're looking at the the market volatility is tremendous. It has the market spooked. It has some of the president's um, staunchest business supporters spooked. The retaliatory tariffs that uh, the Chinese have proposed would affect um, some of the the president's uh, most supportive base, his hardest core base, both in terms of geography and in terms of ideology. So he's bought himself a lot of trouble by his inability to simply ride this very strong economy. Yeah, and of course, he's also introduced the one thing that the economy really hates, which is uncertainty, the, right. the uncertainty factor. So I was actually doing a TV hit earlier today. I was back at my old television station in Milwaukee, and I'm standing there ready to do the, 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 the hit, and uh, the reporter 
who was whose desk was right next to where I, I do this, is working on guess what story? The reaction of Wisconsin farmers, um, the, the the soybean farmers to to the tariffs and the fact that one third of all of their product is in fact exported. And you know you extrapolate that story across the upper Midwest, some of the areas uh, where Donald Trump was was elected. And this story is is percolating out there and it's generating a lot of buzz. And it's not uh, you know it's not positive. Now in the editorial. Uh, you know, the magazine makes the case. It's hard to see how congressional Republicans and Republican candidates can make the case for pro-growth economic policies when the leader of their party is famous for fulminating at private businesses. Those fulminations regularly pummel voters, stock portfolios and 401k accounts. Should we expect affected shareholders, people who've lost money because the president was annoyed that morning to go on supporting that president's party? The GOP cannot be the party of free markets and the party of anti-corporate hectoring at the same time. But they can pretend to be, right? <laughs> they can pretend to be. And that's what you're seeing. I mean, there's this sort of dissonance between um, what you see from the president, what the president is tweeting, his language about uh, trade, uh, about trade deficits, obsession with, with trade deficits, his willingness to start trade wars and to call them trade wars. And then what you're seeing from some of his advisors, most especially Larry Kudlow, who, who joined the administration just last week, you know, Larry Kudlow was out doing TV interviews yesterday and trying to uh, explain what the president is doing in the context of free trade. And and Kudlow was out there insisting that the president is at heart a free trader, Mm. despite all of the rhetoric that we've seen. This is not going to end well. I like Larry Kudlow. I do. I I like Larry Kudlow. I find his personal story uh, inspiring. And I think he, you know, he, he... could be if he didn't have to argue against the things that he's been arguing for most of his professional career, he could be a pretty effective public spokesman for the president. He makes a pretty good case when he's uh, when he's on television or when he, when he's in an interview. Um, but, but if in fact the Republicans are the party of pro-economic growth, the party of free markets, where are the congressional republic? I mean, this feels like it was Groundhog Day. But where are the congressional Republican voices? Telling the president, okay, you know, stop uh, trying to drive down the stock price of, of companies. Uh, this trade war is going to be counterproductive. I mean, I've seen, you know, here and there are some comments, but you know, once again, it, it, you, am I right about this? The congressional Republicans um, are keeping their powder dry or whispering in private. They're just not yes. willing to draw any red lines. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you heard some criticism of the president's. Um, early rhetoric on on trade and of the steel and aluminum tariffs that that he proposed. Um, you had some members of Congress speak out against those. You have members of Congress who are more supportive of of the the kind of recasting of the confrontation with China as primarily about intellectual property because that's something that Republicans have been arguing for a while, or at least some Republicans have have been arguing for a while. It's time to to actually challenge. China and intellectual property theft. But that feels like a recasting because it is a recasting. That's not what the president is primarily doing. The president's doing this because he's obsessed with trade deficits and he thinks we're getting ripped off. And he made that case during the campaign. He made that case before the campaign. He's believed this for a long time. And fundamentally, his views are at odds with the free market, free trade principles that once were defining characteristic of the Republican Party. 
once once upon a time. Now, now speaking of people who, in fact, do draw um, red lines, um, I'm, I'm going to be adamant about this, that the story that I have in the Weekly Standard, The Conscience of Ann Coulter, is not pro-Ann Coulter. But the point is that unlike a lot of other people on the right who've supported Trump, you know, Ann Coulter does have a line. I mean, she, you know, I mean, she, it, may, it may be a, a, you know, a bizarre, batshit, crazy, bigoted line, but but at least it is a line. <laughs> and, and right now she seems to be driving a certain amount of of, uh, of action on the part of the president. Right. I mean, when Ann gets unhappy and says that, you know, we might we might be former Trumpers, you can ignore those never Trumpers, but you cannot ignore these former Trumpers who feel betrayed if you go all squishy on on immigration and that appears to be behind what the president, this rather remarkable last 72 hours with the president is taking a hard line on immigration, uh, you know, killing the DACA deal again and, and sending and sending National Guard troops down to the border. So well, at least somebody I, has some standards, right? I, I th- Charlie, it's a it's a pro Ann Coulter piece. I hate to break it to you. It's a pro it's a defensive Ann Coulter in a certain respect. If, if, you, <laughs> squint, if you squint really hard and ignore the snark. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you got to say that, you know, unlike I mean, if, if you've written a book called, you know, in Trump, we trust. Right. And then you come out and say, look, I, I know the guy was was a complete moron and, and, and whatever, but I was willing to do it because I believed him. OK, in Trump, we trust. And now she's finding out like who knew who warned her that maybe Trump, you know, is not as trustworthy as she thought. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? But at least at least she's following through, unlike a lot of the fluffers that we see in American politics today. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, do people follow Ann Coulter? I mean, where do where do other um, strong Trump supporters in the media, in the commentariat, what have you, do they go? I mean, there's always been, at least it seems to me, a, a division in sort of the, the Trump base of the Republican Party. There, there are, on the one hand, the the true America firsters, I would include Jeff Sessions uh, in in that group as maybe the avatar of that group. People who believed in Trumpism more than they believed in Donald Trump, but they saw Donald Trump as a vehicle to enact the kinds of policies that they thought were important. Jeff Sessions would be would be somebody. Michael Anton, uh, author of the Flight ninety three election, would be somebody else who falls in into the sort of Trumpist. Um, category where they care about the ideas and they think the the old conservative movement is rotten and out of touch. On the other hand, you have the sort of Trump cultists who who are the people, as you write in in your column, you know, who would defend whatever the president did, including shooting somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and would find ways to talk about other things. They would they, the the first reaction would be, um, what did the person deserve to to what do to deserve to be shot? And the second question would be, why did the media get the make of the gun wrong? Um, Those folks aren't going to leave Donald Trump, I think, no matter what. Um, But the question is whether he loses some support among that first group, the America Firsters. And, you know, I think he's been pushing his luck with them might be the right way to say it. On the one hand, I think they'd be supportive of the kind of trade uh, policies that he's now talking about implementing. Uh, on the other hand, they've been frustrated with him on immigration. Uh, there was a quote from Mark Krikorian, who's a, um, a strong proponent of stricter immigration enforcement and stricter immigration rules, um, you know, sort of saying, we don't even know what to believe on the president from, from day to day. You've seen some other folks take shots. You also have people who are actually loyal to Jeff Sessions and who are frustrated with the president's constant 
badgering of, of Sessions, uh, which continues to this day in private. The president's very upset with Jeff Sessions. So you, the big question, I think, politically inside the Republican Party as it relates to Trump is, does he keep that Trump base intact, both the America Firsters and the, the Trump cultists, and then also you know, win the, enough of the maybe more traditional conservatives and Republicans to, to keep his support among Republicans in the 80, 85 percent range. Well, I want to talk about this uh, when, you know, of the what what the how the uh, the midterms are shaping up, because, you know, as 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 the as the Republicans double down on the base, I think they make it a little bit harder to win the independents. And of course, I want to talk a little bit about what happened in uh, in Wisconsin earlier this week. Uh, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by Quip. When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day, and Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. This is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. Now, if you travel a lot, you can't take your big electric brush along. You know that. Quip, in fact, though, is built and designed so that you can take it along with you. Um, it also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, unsticks to use as a cover for this travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or your carry-on. Now, look, most toothbrushes do not get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did, and you can find out for yourself why. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go right now to getquip.com standard, you'll get your first refill pack free. That's free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com standard. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Okay, Stephen Hayes, you're a fellow cheesehead. Uh, you saw what happened this week. Uh, not only did uh, the the left do something they have not done in some time, which is to win an election for a Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, they want it going away. And um, Scott Walker tweeted out that you know there's a real risk of a blue wave. Your take on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Scott Walker's right. He's been saying this for a while. He, he said it after the uh, state Senate upset in um, northwestern Wisconsin a couple months ago. He's right about this. And, and you know, he's sort of standing there in, in Madison, waving his arms frantically, trying to get people to pay attention. And there is a complacency, I think, uh, among many Republican rank and file voters, at least. I don't sense that complacency when I talk to Republican strategists or Republicans up for election this year, uh, including some Republican House members who are in what ought to be considered pretty safe districts. Um, there is a growing concern that, that what is likely to happen in November is a real wave. And, um, you know, of the proportions of a 1994, a 2010 um, sizable wave. Now, you can look at counter indicators um, like the generic ballot. You can look at the president's approval rating, which has trended up in recent days and weeks. We had a good piece from our David Byler about why that might matter that the president's approval rating has ticked up just a little bit. Um, but I think that the broader trends, particularly when you look at these off-year elections, special elections, either on the state legislative level or the Supreme Court, like we just had in Wisconsin, or the special elections that have taken place 
um, nationally for, for congressional seats. There is a, a pretty clear message uh, coming yeah. from those. Yeah, and, and there's a palpable gap in, in enthusiasm. I mean, in Wisconsin, of course, we've been ground zero for some time. And, you know, conservative voters have uh, have been very, very mo- uh, mobilized. But but this time, there's no question who was who was jazzed to turn out, who was jazzed to walk through fire and cr- crawl over broken glass to get to the polls. And yep. and I think the really concerning thing is that the, the liberal candidate, and of course the elections here are very much proxies between right and left, the liberal candidate made no bones about the fact that she was running as an ideological yes. progressive. We have never had a campaign like this that was remotely successful, you know, much less you know, vic- victorious. And even though the state Republican Party poured in tons of money and the business community poured in uh, tons of money, I think they got outspent and they just got whooped all around the state. You look at the map uh, comparing uh, 2014 when Scott Walker was reelected to this election, and you see some pretty ominous uh, trends. And I'm not sure that the doubling down on the uh, Ann Coulter wing of the party is going to turn that around in any appreciable way between now and November. Plus, even though the president's approval rating is ticked up, I was looking at the morning consult tracking poll. And when you just look at the strong disapproval number, it is really spiking. And isn't that what general elections are about? Uh, measuring the intensity of the support rather yeah. than just sort of the overall generic support? Well, look, I mean, it was the case in 2010 and then again in 2014 that Republicans were scolded by strategists and commentators and others saying, you really have to have a positive message going into these elections or you're not going to do well. And there were efforts at putting together some kind of a contract for America light or something. Um, But ultimately, they ran against Barack Obama and his overreach, and they were successful in part because of exactly what you've identified. There was a tremendous enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans exploited that and and rode that to, to tremendous victories. Uh, I think it's likely that Democrats will be able to do the same thing uh, again in 2018. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see exactly how big it is, whether it's enough to get Democrats the House and Potentially the Senate, where they're, I think their path is a little difficult if you look Tough. at these on a yeah. on a race by race basis. But you know, if you look back at at twenty eight at twenty ten and twenty fourteen, some of the the races that we looked at on an individual basis didn't end up really mattering on an individual basis because the right. wave was so big. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, just before we uh, sat down for this podcast, the word came out that the Atlantic. Uh, has fired Kevin Williamson. Uh, of course, a lot of our listeners are familiar with with Kevin, um, who uh, had worked for National Review magazine and then had just recently been hired. Big campaign on the part of the left to get rid of him. This is the statement from Jeffrey Goldberg, who I found to be a reasonable guy in the past. Late yesterday afternoon, information came to our attention that caused us to reconsider this relationship. Specifically, the subject of one of Kevin's most controversial tweets was also a centerpiece of a podcast discussion, see, even podcasts are dangerous, in which Kevin explained his views on the subject of the death penalty and abortion. The language he used in this podcast and in my conversations with him in recent days made it clear that the original tweet did in fact represent his carefully considered views. The tweet was not merely an impulsive, decontextualized, heat-of-the-moment post, as Kevin had explained it. Furthermore, the language used in the podcast was callous and violent, This runs contrary to the Atlantic's tradition of respectful, well-reasoned debate and to the values of our workplace. Kevin is a gifted writer. He's been nothing but professional and then basically says they've parted ways. So 
you, your thoughts on the Atlantic firing Kevin Williamson. Well, I've, I've been a fan of Jeff, Goldberg, Jeff Goldberg's yeah. for a long time. I was a fan of his writing at The New Yorker. I was a fan of what he's done at, at The Atlantic. A lot of his hires have, I think, really strengthened what was already a very strong magazine. I don't agree with his decision here. Um, I think Kevin is a terrific writer. Kevin has some controversial views. I, I would imagine that if um, an enterprising young conservative reporter went out and studied carefully some of the views of the Atlantic's left-wing writers, you would find things that were every bit as controversial from an objective standpoint, but might not strike um, people from the left on the left as as problematic as what Kevin had talked about um, on abortion. Um, look, I, I I think Kevin is going to have a, a long career writing uh, his very provocative, very interesting, very thoughtful, and very well-written uh, material for a long time to come. You're an editor-in-chief, though. There are red lines, right? I mean, the National Review magazine at one point uh, decided that Ann Coulter was uh, you know, a bridge too far, and they, they, they got rid of her. Is there in your mind, I mean, you know, some some sense that, okay, you, you, you want to be edgy, you want to be, you, you want to encourage people to push the envelope, but what goes too far? Yeah. Have you, ever had, have you, have you had to fire anyone, um, <laughs> getting into the weeds here, for writing something that you just thought was too extreme? Um, no, uh, I no. haven't. We've... Uh... In my view, what magazines like the Weekly Standard exist to do is to have a big, ugly, messy debate. And, you know, you know this from from having been with us now for a while. We have people on the masthead who have a wide variety of views on issues like abortion, um, issues like gay marriage, um, the president of the United States. We have people who are generally favorably disposed to Donald Trump, and we have people who are very much not uh, favorably disposed to Donald Trump. We should be having that debate. And of course, there are lines. Um, but, you know, as, as, as you know, as anybody who either talks a lot for a living or writes a lot for a living, um, you're going to, we're all going to say something stupid yep. at some point. And we'll just have different lines. I think, um, you know, there are things that people on the left have said in the past that I've found appalling as a general rule. I don't think people should be fired for one-off comments made in the heat of a debate or something. Um, and we're better off to have more debate, even if it's ugly and messy. Um, you can't have an anything goes attitude though. I mean, the, the, you know, we wouldn't publish Milo. Um, right. The stuff he right. says it doesn't example. doesn't uh, encourage debate or the kind of debate that we want to encourage here. Um, there are other people that we wouldn't publish, but um, I think as a general matter, it's good to have these these debates, and I think uh, better better to have them uh, inside magazines like ours, like The Atlantic, like National Review. Stephen hey, thanks. Thank you for joining me, and thanks for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.